Again, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, you've loved us with this everlasting love, and we long for the beauties of that love to be heralded in this place and beyond this place to the ends of the earth. So please use these gifts to that end, that Jesus might be known and delighted in and loved among a people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. We ask in his name. Amen. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 9. We want to read beginning at verse 19 and read through verse 24. And uh, with this message, just uh, before Advent, we're bringing this section of this letter to a close. And in this Part of this letter, Paul is asking this question, and it's a question that he's heard from people where he has preached the gospel. Particularly, he's heard this from Jews who have at least expressed interest in or who have responded to the gospel. Has the word of God failed? Has the purpose of God failed, given widespread unbelief among Among Jewish people, has the word of God, the purpose of God, the promise of God failed? And he's answering that question in the negative. No, it hasn't failed. And through these verses, he's helping us understand that answer. And so read with me again, beginning at verse 19 of Romans chapter 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? To answer back to God, will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared hand, prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Let's pray and ask God for help in thinking through and wrestling with his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do need you. We always need you. We are especially mindful of our need of you when we come to your word. We need for you to give your spirit, commission your spirit to open our eyes, the eyes of our understanding, to illumine our understanding so that we can see what you have here for us. And as we consider these things together, More than anything else, Lord Jesus, would you cause us to marvel and wonder? Would you cause us to marvel and wonder? Again, that we should be the objects of this mercy. Humble us under your mighty hand for our good and your glory. We ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. 
This uh, sermon is uh, something of a summary, I suppose you could say. It, it uh, covers ground we've been covering. It's going to highlight a couple of details, but it, uh, it really does bring this portion of this letter to a close. And, um, and as I prayed, just asking for God's Spirit to help us, I really do, uh, do long for what I think Paul longed for, uh, as as he made his way through this letter. Uh, and it is a longing that Paul, in, in fact, gives expression to as he comes to the end of this section of this letter. You read Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you come to the end of it, and the end of this, this portion of Paul's letter ends in a doxology. It ends in a song of praise to God. You know, you get to the place in these things where, where everything just, everything stops except for worship. <laughs> everything stops except for worship. About 30 years ago, maybe a bit more, I read a book entitled The Golden Cow. I don't know if any of you uh, stumbled across this book by a fellow named John White. He wrote some other stuff, some, some really good things. One of the books he wrote was a book about the Christian life, which is a book I really needed at that point in my Christian life, still a young Christian. The book was entitled The Fight. I had to get on this, the other side of this victorious Christian living thing. And it was great to be reminded that the Christian life is a fight. It's a battle. It's a fight. But this other book, The Golden Cow, subtitled Materialism in the Church in the 20th Century, was really, really helpful and insightful. And in that book, The Golden Cow, I was introduced, interestingly enough, to Kenneth Graham's book, The Wind in the Willows. Some of you know this book. You've read it to your kids. It's like most children's books, a book that adults ought to read. You know why they have children's sermons and services? For adults. There's a passage in this book by John White, and this passage is in the midst of his discussion of how Christians have become numbed to things they ought to be alive to. They've become numbed to things they ought to be alive to. Chief among the things that they ought to be alive to is God himself. God in all of his dazzling power and beauty and wonder and glory. And the passage captures what John White calls, borrowing from the philosophers, he cites C.S. Lewis and he cites Plato. This particular passage captures what John White calls an ordinate or appropriate or right response to God. And the passage is this. Mole and rat are the two characters in this little passage. And they're searching for the baby otter who is lost. And in their search, they come down a river and they come to an island. And here's where you pick up the passage in the reading. Slowly, but with no doubt or hesitation, whatever, and in something of a solemn expectancy, the two animals passed through the broken, tumultuous water and moored their boat at the flowery margin of the island. In silence they landed and pushed through the blossom and scented herbage and undergrowth 
that led up to the level ground till they stood on a little lawn of a marvelous green set round with nature's own orchard trees, crabapple, wild cherry, and sloe. This is the place of my song dream. The place the music played to me, whispered the rat, as if in a trance. Here, in this holy place, here, if anywhere, surely we shall find Him. Then suddenly, the mole felt a great awe fall upon him. An awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head, and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy, but it was an awe that smote and held him, and without seeing, he knew it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. With difficulty, he turned to look for his friend and saw him at his side, cowed, stricken, and trembling violently. And still there was utter silence in the populous bird-haunted branches around them. And still the light grew and grew. Perhaps he would never have dared to raise his eyes, but that, though the piping was now hushed, the call and the summons seemed still dominant and imperious. He might not refuse were death himself waiting to strike him instantly once he had looked with mortal eye on things rightly kept hidden. But trembling, he obeyed and raised his humble head. And then, in that utter clearness of the imminent dawn, while nature, flushed with the fullness of incredible color, seemed to hold her breath for the event, he looked in the very eyes of the friend and helper. He saw the backward sweep of the curved horns gleaming in the growing daylight. He saw the stern hooked nose between the kindly eyes that were looking down on them humorously while the bearded mouth broke into a half smile at the corners. He saw the rippling muscles on the arm that lay across the broad chest the long, supple hand still holding the panpipes, only just fallen away from the parted lips. He saw the splendid curves of the shaggy limbs disposed in majestic ease on the sward. Saw, last of all, nestling between his very hooves, sleeping soundly in entire peace and contentment, the little round Pudgy, childish form of the baby otter. All this he saw for one moment, breathless and intense, vivid on the morning sky. And still as he looked, he lived. And still as he lived, he wondered. Rat, he found breath to whisper shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid? murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. In 
And yet, and yet, oh, mole, I am afraid. Then the two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. Kenneth Graham is describing a mole and a rat encountering the great god Pan. But what Kenneth Graham captures is what ought to be the experience of every Christian who contemplates, who reflects upon, who thinks about God and the things of God. I bring this illustration in at the beginning of the sermon and not at the end. Why do it here and not at the end? Because by God's grace, what I want from myself and what I want from us is an ordinate or appropriate response to the things that Paul is dealing with and that he draws us into in these verses. Folks, this is not academic stuff. This is not stuff for a classroom. This is stuff that draws us into the deep and mysterious and overwhelmingly wonderful purposes of an infinite and incomprehensible God. And Paul, it seems to me, wants very, very much for us to end up where he ends up at the end of this section in chapter 11. Crouching to the earth, bowing our heads, and worshiping. Some things to remember quickly. Let's remember where we are. Let's remember where we are in this letter. That Paul is dealing with this problem. This problem of widespread unbelief among his contemporary Jewish brethren and sistren, his countrymen, according to the flesh. And this widespread unbelief causes this question to arise, has the word of God failed? Has the promise of God to Abraham that Abram would be blessed and that God would be God to him and to his descendants after him? Here are all of these descendants of Abraham, all of these contemporaries of the Apostle Paul, and they are rejecting God, and they are rejecting His Gospel, and they are rejecting His promised Messiah. And as we've said multiple times, it causes Paul grief, deep, deep grief, to the extent that he could wish himself accursed and cut off. He knows it's impossible for that to happen. But he feels this grief deeply. And the question then is, has God failed? Has his promise failed? And the answer is absolutely not. And what Paul is trying to help us understand here is that it has never been the case. It has never been the case that all of Abram's physical seed would be saved. 
It's never been the case that all of Abram's physical seed would be saved. Verses 6 and 7, not all who are of Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are the physical offspring of Abram are his true children. It has always been the case that only some of physical Israel would be saved. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. Paul has already said in Romans 2, 28 and 29, that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision an outward and physical thing, but a Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly, who has experienced the circumcision of the heart. And so what is true Israel? Who are the true descendants of Abraham? The true descendants of Abraham are those whose hearts have been circumcised, whose hearts have been changed. And as we saw last week, that true Israel comes both from the Jewish nation and from the Gentile nations. Us, verse 24, us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And how does that happen? How does that happen? How does true spiritual Israel exist? True spiritual Israel exists solely, singularly, by the mercy of God. God does it. God does it. God chooses from fallen Israel those whom He will save. God chooses from the fallen race of mankind those whom He will save. He chooses and He calls. And He calls out of sin and death. And all of it is a display of His unlimitable, incomprehensible mercy and freedom. And so then, verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but it depends upon God who has mercy. Here's the point. How do you account ultimately for faith? Wherever you find it, true faith, not merely the external show, not merely fulfilling the rules or doing the duties, or observing the ordinances. How do you account for true faith wherever you find it, whether in a Jew or in a Gentile? God. It is God who has mercy. It is God who circumcises the heart. It is God who renews the soul. It is God who regenerates. God and God alone. And He has mercy on whom He wills. And He hardens whom he wills. Folks, it isn't just the United States of America that has had a can-do-it attitude across the days and weeks and months and centuries of its existence. It is human beings who come into this life, into this world, with a can-do-it attitude. And the can-do-it attitude is an attitude detached 
from the existence, the beauty, the glory, the being of the one true God. I will do it my way. And there is nothing so calculated to humble and break the pride of human beings or inflame and enrage the pride of human beings. Nothing so calculated to have that dual effect as this passage which attributes salvation, faith, wherever you find it, solely and exclusively to the mercy of God. And so the question emerges. The second thing we must not forget comes from this question, verse 19, why does God still find fault? For who can resist His will? And just trust me on this, if you want to read the commentaries, you can find it out for yourself. If we were to paraphrase this question that seems so innocent, that seems so philosophical, that seems so theoretical, if we were to paraphrase this question, it could be put in the form of a statement, God, you are unreasonable. You are not permitted to be this way. And you see how Paul responds. He responds simply by saying, Sir, Madam, you forget yourself. You forget who you are. That is the second thing we must not do. We must not forget who we are. It's the second time Paul has used this phrase, Oh man, the first time he used it in Romans 2, verse 1. If you think back a couple of years. In chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, Paul delineates the features of a degenerating culture, a degenerating human society, the degenerated Roman culture. He delineates the features of it. It's progressive degeneration. And then in chapter 2 he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. To whom is he speaking? He's speaking to the self-righteous, ethnocentric Jew who looks upon the Gentile with contempt, believing that he is above the Gentile. But Paul presses home throughout chapter 2 that they, Jews as well, are infected with the same cancer, the cancer of sin. They do the very same things that they condemn in Gentiles, and so they themselves stand condemned. And in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul reminds both Jew and Gentile that all alike are under sin. There's nothing but spiritual pride and arrogance that would look down on another human being with contempt. Forgetting who I am. And it is nothing but pride and arrogance for the creature to say to the Creator, You must not be like this. 
You see, we forget who we are. We forget who we are. It's a wonderful little passage in Genesis chapter 11. I think I've mentioned this before. This story is the story of the building of the Tower of Babel. And as the still united population of humankind seeks to build this tower that would exalt humankind and would lift humankind up into the heavens. There's this wonderful little phrase in verse 7 of chapter 11 of Genesis where God says to the holy company, the angelic host that gather about him, where God says, let us go down and see what's up. And you understand that God, in the spirit of Psalm 2, the God of heaven who laughs at the armies of the world as they seek to array themselves and unite themselves in order to cast off their bonds of loyalty to Him, God laughs, God mocks the hubris, the arrogance, the pride of nations that Isaiah tells us are like dust on a scale. Let us go down. Why? Why does God need to go down? Does God need to go down because He doesn't know what's going on down there? No. It is God exposing just how small human efforts are at reaching to the infinity of the heavens where the incomprehensible God dwells. Remember Job at the end of the book of Job in just a few poignant, penetrating verses humbles himself before God who had finally answered him All those chapters, Job, Job wants an audience with the King of Glory. Job wants to speak with God. In fact, he wants an umpire to come into this conversation and referee the conversation between himself and God. And when the God of unspeakable glory and infinite power begins to speak to Job, he speaks not in affirmations, but he speaks in questions. Where were you? 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 Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? Can you? Can you? Can you? In rapid fire succession, Job's pathetic, puny, and small understanding of the whole of God and the cosmos is put in stark relief against the majesty of Almighty God. And Job, at the end, finally gets it and humbles himself and says, in effect, I had no earthly idea what I was talking about. Isaiah and John ushered into the presence of the God of glory in Isaiah 6 and of the risen Christ in Revelation 1, and both are slayed. And brought to their knees. We forget who we are, my friends. We forget 
who we are. And we presume to tell God, this is how you must be. Does God answer all of our questions? Of course not. He doesn't answer all of our questions. He doesn't outline every particular detail of his decree, his purpose. The unfolding of that purpose as he by his providence sustains all of history and moves it in the direction of this glorious end. He doesn't answer all of our questions, but he answers enough of them. John Calvin has a great insight into this. It's this. When God stops speaking, I stop learning and begin to worship. God doesn't answer every question. But he answers enough, he reveals enough, he discloses enough for us to know what our proper place is. Creatures before the Creator, receiving what He does reveal as a disclosure according to His wisdom of what we most need to know. And when He stops, we stop and we worship. And here's the third thing we forget. We forget who God is. There's so much that we could say here. So much that we could say here. I could do my little dog and pony show again about God's knowledge and all of the different levels of knowledge that there are in God. From the actual and all of its relationships to the theoretical and possible and all of their actual and potential relationships. We could talk about the knowledge of God and again have Excedrin headache number 231. Because God touching knowledge is omniscient. He possesses all knowledge. We could talk about His power, the limitlessness of it. We could talk about His presence, that He is everywhere present in the vastness of this creation of His. But what is in view here in verses 22 and 23 is His wrath. Is His wrath. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Verse 22 focuses our attention upon wrath. Wrath is not a happy prospect, is it? The idea that God might not withhold his wrath, but that God might actually unleash his wrath, release his wrath. It's not a happy prospect, is it? You need to remember. You need to remember that God's wrath is not a temper tantrum. God is not a spoiled child in the grocery store with his mother who doesn't get the Snickers bar or the bag of candy corn that he desperately wants. And so he unleashes this irrational tirade of fury against the mother. The wrath of God is not an inexplicable outburst, a tirade, no. Here is the wrath of God. John Murray's definition. You have to go back 
over three years, if you're going to remember this, because it's from Romans chapter 1. John Murray, wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Now, before you jump to conclusions and think that unseemly in God or inappropriate or somehow outdated, consider yourself. Consider yourself. How do you respond? How do you respond inside, in your heart, in your mind, when you learn of something which is cruel or ugly or dehumanizing? Do we need to stir up images of Pol Pot or of Idi Amin or of Rwanda? Do we need to stir up images of Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer? How do you respond in the face of cruelty, egregious, serious cruelty? You see, because you are in the image of God and because you were made for justice and for righteousness and because you were made to be treated properly and you were made to treat others properly when you see or hear cruelty, because you are in the image of God, even though that image is marred and altered, there is still from deep within you, deep within you, This abiding sense that certain things are wrong and those wrongs should be redressed. And when those wrongs are redressed, it is right that they should be. That is what the wrath of God is. It is God. His holy revulsion against all that is the contradiction of His perfect holiness. And it comes to its fullest expression, folks. It comes to its fullest expression. And if you don't remember anything else from this morning, please remember this. This holy revulsion of God's soul against all that is the contradiction of His perfect holiness comes to fullest expression in two places. It comes to fullest expression at the end of history against all who are unrepentant and refuse to bow the knee before the Creator Redeemer. And it comes to fullest expression at the cross of Jesus Christ. where all of those things which are contradictions of the perfect holiness and righteousness of an infinitely perfect and holy God, all of those things which are contradictions of that holiness in me are taken from me and are given to Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ might bear the full measure of the wrath of God, His holy revulsion against everything that is the contradiction of His own nature. At the cross, 
And at the end of history, justice is served and wrongs are redressed. That is real, my friends. And that is a thing not to be forgotten. And then here is this final and stunning thing that I simply must not forget. I must not forget what God is doing. You ever wonder what history is about? What is history about? There's an answer to that question. In verses 22 and 23 of Romans 9, you want to know what history is about. You want to understand what history is about. You want to understand why history even continues. What if God, desiring to show His wrath, that's worth contemplating, isn't it? That God desires to show His wrath. Again, that is a little temper tantrum or this unpredictable outburst, but because He is perfectly just and perfectly righteous, and it is a right thing for a righteous God to desire the expression of that righteousness. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Endured with much patience. Insert the name Pharaoh in the text. Insert the name Pol Pot. Insert the name Adolf Hitler. Insert the name Nero. What if God determined to show His wrath, nevertheless restrains the manifestation, the full manifestation of that wrath upon those who deserve that wrath, who warrant that wrath. What if God, for some reason, withholds and restrains that wrath so that any and all whether in real action or in their hearts, are guilty of the most heinous and brutal cruelties? What if God restrains Himself from venting His wrath upon the mastermind behind them all, the devil of hell Himself? Why would God do that? Why would God allow these travesties, these atrocities to persist and continue? Continue. One simple, singular reason that He might display His mercy upon those whom He has carved out from this lump to make them vessels of His glory and displays of the glory of His mercy. Folks, I became a Christian in April 1971. If God had made the determination 
to bring the full measure of the manifestation of his wrath, his righteous and just indignation against sin in all of its forms, in every place, which he will do someday. If God had decided to do that in March of 1971, do you understand I would have perished? I would have perished. God, who is, hey, at this point, I don't care about you. I care about me. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved me, restrained, withheld the full manifestation of his wrath until his glorious purpose for me was fulfilled that I might be redeemed and delivered and be made into a vessel of mercy fit not for destruction any longer, but by his grace fitted for glory. Why is it that God right now in this moment, at 12.45, why does God continue to restrain Himself and not give vent to the full measure of His wrath against everything that is the contradiction of His own perfect holiness? One singular reason. His Son has not yet been as fully glorified as he will be in these next seconds and minutes when people all across this globe in hearing the gospel repent and turn by the grace of God from their sin and from judgment and embrace Jesus Christ. The Father wants more glory for his Son and that glory is most especially seen as he delivers from wrath and judgment more and more and more vessels to be displays of his mercy and grace. From Jew and Gentile alike. How do I bow before this great God? How do I stand in the presence of this great God. Rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking. Rat, are you afraid? Afraid, murmured Rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Never, never. And yet, oh, mole, I am afraid. This triune God of heaven and earth, of unspeakable majesty and glory and perfect holiness, of unfathomable love and grace, is simply not a God to be trifled with. He is a God to be worshipped. To be worshipped. Worshipped by glad-hearted people who have become by His grace the objects of His redeeming love. Let's pray together.
Oh, Father, forgive me when I trifle with you. Forgive us when we trifle with you and set before us the unspeakable, incomprehensible majesty of your redeeming mercy and love and grace. All to the praise of our glorious Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you.